We're going to have some ancient words imparted right now. And uh, this is the second of our question and answer time. And if you're new to Calvary, usually in August, we take a couple uh, weeks to answer your Bible questions. And so this gives you a chance to get some answers to whatever Bible questions are on your mind. And I hope that as we answer these questions, it kind of baits you to want to study the Bible. You know, I think a lot of times we we content ourselves with merely reading the Bible or reading the Bible a little bit, and we never really learn how to study it, to dig into it, to think about it and ponder on it and meditate on it and memorize it and, you know, just do all those things the scriptures say. Uh, reading is good, uh, but all those other things are equally important. You have people say things like, well, I just don't have time and I just... Just my memory doesn't work. I can't memorize things. Yes, you can. If I said you want to come over to lunch today, you'd remember that. Um, you'd remember. So granted, uh, when we get older, it's harder to remember things, but we remember a lot of things and we remember them quickly. We just need to make an effort. And so what I would encourage you to do is as you listen to these questions, don't just say, wow, that's cool. Think about studying the Bible for yourself. You can find all these same answers if you seek uh, God's wisdom as hidden treasure and cry out for understanding and lift your voice and do all those things. Proverbs 2 says, then you will discover the knowledge of God. You will discover that as a Christian, the the biggest gems and jewels of the truth are not found usually lying on the surface. You got to dig for him and God wants you to dig for him. And that's why he says we are to be workmen who are not to be ashamed digging out those truths and handling accurately the word of God. I also just want to encourage you that if you're not in a Bible study, you need to get in a Bible study, not a book study. A Bible study. Now, if you're in a Bible study and then you have more time and you want to like go through a book with somebody, that's fine. But everybody needs to be in a Bible study where you study the Bible, where you dig into the scriptures. I have talked to so many people who've told me things like, well, I was just never in a Bible study and I was a Christian for five or 10 or 15 years. And now I've been in a Bible study and it is so wonderful. I just thought, where have I been? What have I been doing? How come I haven't been studying the Bible? It's just so great. And we rob our own souls. We rob our own joy when we don't dig into the word of God. And so make sure that um, you find yourself in a Bible study where you dig into the word and just be blessed by God. All right, as always, the questions are varied, and uh, some of them are so good. Almost every one of them, I just want to preach a whole sermon on it, but I know that you all want to have your questions answered, so I'm going to try and get through as fast as I can. And so the first question is this, what is the responsibility of a wife if the husband does not want the wife to take the kids to church? Now, that is a great question, isn't it? Because instantly you think, well, she needs to go to church. Does she need to take the kids to church? And what if you have an unbelieving husband? He says, don't take the kids to church. Should she take them or not take them? Should she submit or not submit? And what does the Bible say? Well, there are several little doctrines here that really need to be understood. So let me go through them and then we'll answer the question. The first is, who is the head of the family? 
That would be the first thing you would need to answer. In in a Christian family, who is to be the leader, the head of that family? Well, that is answered in 1 Corinthians 11.3 where Paul says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Here we have a clear statement that in the family, in the home, the husband is to be the head, the leader, and the wife is to be the follower. That is, she is to submit. But this is not only true in the home, it's also true in the church. A lot of people come to me and go, how come you don't have any women pastors? How come you don't have any women elders? And it's like, well, how come there you know, weren't any women apostles? Um, the same reason. Same reason, because the scriptures make it clear that women are not to address men publicly, either teaching or exercise authority over them. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when Paul is talking about the use of tongues, and he is kind of contrasting the biblical use of tongues, which is speaking in a known language that is unknown to the speaker. Um, he's contrasting that between ecstatic speech, this kind of this emotionalism where you just say mumblings and jumblings. Uh, it was practice in the pagan cults as well and is still practiced today and people call it the gift of tongues and it's not it's just a static speech but he's contrasting those two in first corinthians 14 and he addresses whether or not it would be okay for a woman to get up in a congregation of men and women and address them publicly and actually utter words of instruction to the congregation and this is what he says in first corinthians 14 verses 34 and 35 the women are to keep silent in the churches for are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves just as the law also says if they desire to learn anything let them ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church and again the context is speaking in tongues both before and after so if some woman gets up and says i have the gift of tongues she is not to speak if she wants to get up and question what's being said she is not to speak um, that is not the woman's role Paul makes this also clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where again, speaking of public worship, when the church gathers together, he says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Again, the context is the group gathering. Women can teach women. Women can teach children. Women can, you know, do a lot of uh, private instruction. They can even instruct men privately. But when it comes to corporate worship, gatherings, mixed men and women, they are not to do that. It has nothing to do with their abilities. It has nothing to do with their spirituality. It has everything to do with God's role for them. Concerning marriage, Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. And then down in verse 24 of chapter 5, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. In Titus 2.3 it says, be, uh, Wives are to be subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So here you have several key phrases. Submit as unto the Lord. Submit in everything. Submit so the word of God will not be dishonored. Almost every text that mentions women or wives, it tells them they need to submit to their husbands. So the question is this. So do you just do it no matter what? You know, the husband says, okay, honey, I figured out a way to rob the bank. Um, come with me. And, um, and what we're going to do is, and I, I need you to do some things and drive the getaway car. You know, is Bonnie and Clyde okay? Um, if, if, if your husband asks you to do something like that, you just submit in everything as unto the Lord. Well, think about it. Would the Lord ever have you rob a bank? 
Now, so as unto the Lord is never would be to sin. Um, so the word of God would not be decided, would never be to violate the word of God. And uh, um, in everything, of course, must be qualified as unto Christ. So there is not to be a just carte blanche submission. Um, the woman must do what is right. I mean, if her husband is, you know, abusing her, she needs to say something, even if the husband says, don't tell anybody. You know, if some wife is uh, notices her husband's in leadership and he's involved in pornography, she needs to pull the plug. Even if he says not to, she has to submit to Christ and she can never sin for her husband. The key text on this is Colossians 3.18, which answers the question, how far the wife's submission to her husband could go in a very clear way. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So the phrase as fitting in the Lord then qualifies it. If the submission isn't fitting in the Lord, then you can't do it. You can't do it. So you, know, you can't do anything that would be sinful. You couldn't defy your conscience or sin. So um, if you are a Christian wife and your husband's an unbeliever, then you still go to church. You still read the Bible. You still pray. You still live like a Christian. And you don't stop living like a Christian for anybody, even your husband. Your children, you have children, you evangelize them. You talk to them about the Lord. You pray for them. Your husband says, don't do that. He said, sorry, I have to submit to the Lord. Now, when it comes time to go into church, what happens? He's going to be, he's responsible. He's the head of the family. If he says, don't go to church, then, then they don't go to church. And, uh, a lot of times that's a little bit fearful because you're thinking, um, to yourself, well, 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 that doesn't seem good. Well, I want them to know Christ. I want them to be saved. Well, I'm sure if we raised our hands, a lot of us here grew up in families that never went to church. We got saved. Amazing, isn't it? Um, God is able to save your children by your godly example and your instruction to them. And, and so how should a wife with a disobedient husband act? Well, turn to First Peter chapter 3 and you'll see how this is. This is uh, one of the key texts. First Peter 3 addresses this very thing as Peter um, wants wives to understand who have these disobedient husbands, how they are to you know, be an influence, a witness to them. And it's quite opposite of what you might expect. He says this in first Peter chapter three, verse one, in the same way, you wise be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. Notice that the women are usually very verbal, a lot more than men. They like to talk. The way to win the disobedient husband is not nagging, complaining, jabbing, you know, leaving little pamphlets and books around the house like gospel landmines, hoping he'll, you know, step on one and get blown to heaven. Um, (laughs) No, it says without a word by the behavior of their wives. So how you are a testimony to them is you submit to them in everything except those things God commands you to do. And then you do those. You do those things. 
It says in verse two, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, and you're not, you're chaste and you're respectful. You're not um, chaste. It has to do with purity. You don't try and say, well, I'm going to try and win them to the Lord by getting a new hairdo, plastic surgery, losing weight and makeup. You know, I'm going to try and you'll swoon him um, to the Lord, you know, lure him by my looks to Christ. No, that's not how you do it either. It's not that you're to look ugly. We'll see that in a minute. Um, uh, that might drive him away, but, uh, by respectful behavior, that is behavior that is endearing of respect. And then he says, your dormant must not merely be external. In other words, you know, don't look ugly, um, for Jesus. Um, you know, it's okay if you dress nice and you look nice for your husband, but don't think that's going to how that's going to lead him to the Lord. I mean, he might be, you know, more attracted to you physically, uh, externally, but, um, he says not uh, with the braiding hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. He says not merely that stuff, though you might do that stuff. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. So you are to work on your heart and then your gentle, quiet spirit. And that external character is the strongest witness to bring him to the Lord. Then he says, that is what's precious in God's sight. And then he gives a little example from the same way uh, in former times, holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. That is with godly character and a gentle and quiet spirit being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Then you have become her children. If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, when you think about Sarah and Abraham, that's pretty, she, I mean, Sarah is like the champion of submission. Why? Because in two different instances they were traveling and came upon some you know powerful pagans and abraham feared for his life because though his wife was older she was beautiful and she was he was fearful that they would kill him and take his wife so he said tell them you're my sister and twice he allowed sarah to be taken as the wife of another man well god intervened both times and protected her and abraham was disobedient in doing that but sarah submitted to abraham when abraham said they're going to kill me so she thought well what should i do maintain my purity or let my husband die so she was willing to submit to his dumb stupid sinful plan his plan not of faith in god and god then protected her and intervened in both instances what is amazing is she wasn't fearful as she was taken and about ready to be defiled by these other men, she was not fearful because she was placing her faith in God. And so what happens is, is when a woman gets into a situation where, you know, I want to take my kids to church and my husband says, no, what happens? Fear. Fear what? They won't get saved. They won't come to know Christ. Listen, God can save them. He can save them when they're 20, when they're 50, when they're 70, when they're 90. So don't be frightened by any fear. You go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you serve, you be involved in the ministry. If your husband doesn't like it, he has some options. He can repent and give his life to Christ, which is the preferable option. Secondly, he can just be irritated and put up with you. Or third, he can divorce you. If that happens, you'll get the lion's share of the custody, most likely, and you take your children to church and do what is right. But 
if you're not the head of the family, you can't usurp your husband's authority and take your children to church. You would live like a Christian. You would be an example. Okay, having answered that, a totally different question. Can you briefly explain the emergent church and its dangers? Yeah. (laughs) Now, these questions are just so fun. Um, There is this movement now called the emergent church, not to be confused with the emerging church. Okay. Emerging is different than emergent. Um, But let me just uh, kind of give you some generalizations uh, of what this is about. They they basically... uh, are not Christian. They, they deny the scriptures. Uh, they downplay key doctrines, necessary doctrines for salvation or reject them altogether. They strive for tolerance around diversity. They seek community, um, you know, social action, uh, you know, social gospel. The words community and fellowship are big buzzwords. Let's get together and kind of just have a group and do good. But let's not, we're tired of all the old standard church stuff let's break away and do good you know it's a do-gooder club basically with no jesus attached the emergent church is basically postmodernism applied to christianity and now if you're thinking oh wait a second here now there's too many terms here what is the social gospel and what is postmodernism and what's wrong with diversity and what's wrong with community you're probably thinking don't can you like sort those out? Yeah, so we'll sort them out. First, let's talk about postmodernism. Before we do that, we'll talk about pre-modernism and modernism. You're thinking, I don't know if my hand can handle this. It, it can. It can. Um, pre-modernism is just the, the reigning philosophy or thought from about the mid-1600s before. So during the Puritan era and before, there were people... If you said, you know, what is what is truth? Well, God is. And where does truth come from? It comes from the Bible or the church that interprets the Bible. That was the reigning thought. And so there was no evolution. There was no people just for the most part believed that God was the creator, that God's truth was found in the Bible. And that was the reigning thought. So Calvary Bible Church is pre-modern in that we believe the Bible is the word of God and it is true, that it is inerrant, that it's infallible for all rule of faith and practice and that it trumps all other so-called sources of information or truth. So that's pre-modernism. Then from about the mid-1600s to uh, about the mid-1900s, you, we enter into a new phase. And with the Renaissance, men started seeing themselves as intellectuals, as reasoners, as inventors. And pretty soon, rationalism, that is coming to truth through your own reasoning or, or scientific investigation, then began to take over. And so people began to, you know, sit, you know, and kind of, you know, meditate in their navel and come up with the truth. You know, um, uh, you know, Descartes and his philosophy and all, uh, for all we know, we could just be, you know, grasshopper brains and a vat on Mars and they're just feeding the stimulus into us. And all this reality is, you know, the matrix, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that's De- Cartesian philosophy. And so these are the kinds of things that were started to develop and people started to put more and more trust in science and the reason of man rather than the word of God. So that is modernism, evolution, all of that stuff. 
It was an attack on the veracity of the Bible. Um, uh, it, it infected Christianity and Christianity became liberal. And, you know, the Bible's not true. The Bible's not authoritative. The text isn't true. The miracles didn't happen. All that stuff, liberal Christianity, all came from modernism. Then you have postmodernism, which is what we're after here. Postmodernism is what infects our society today and is so prevalent. I see it all over the place. It, there it is. There, there, there. I mean, it's just everywhere. But a lot of you probably you think, I don't even know what that is. But as soon as I describe it, you'll go, oh, yeah, I know that. Sure you do. It's everywhere. Um, it's... The idea that nothing is to be trusted. You know, I just saw a bumper sticker. Question authority. That's a postmodern slogan. Don't believe anything you're told. Doubt God. Doubt the existence of God. You know, doubt, doubt God altogether. Deny that there's any absolute truth except the absolute truth that Christianity can't be true. Okay. Sayings like, you have your religion and I have mine, or, you know, we all have our own truth. The whole idea is, is that, you know, you have your thing and I have my thing, and, and this truth is, is true for you, but I have a different truth that's true for me. No. There's only one truth. There's not two truths contradicting each other. There is a truth, and the other thing else that contradicts it is wrong. And so in postmodernism, you see all norms and all constructs and all stories and philosophies and religions. And if you read up on this more, these are called meta-narratives. I don't know why they invent these words. They just do to confuse people. All of these meta-narratives that these general areas of truth are all questioned, all set aside because we don't know any of that. We can't don't, don't even know the Bible's true. So anyway, so you take postmodern thought and you apply it to Christianity, then you get the emergent church where... Every view is tolerated but the right one. I mean, have you heard people say, you know, we need to be tolerant. We need to be tolerant. I say, okay, we'll be tolerant of this view. If you don't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will perish in hell. Well, that's not tolerant. It's like, well, I thought you're into toleration. Well, I am. Well, then tolerate this. Unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will perish in hell. Well, that's not tolerant. Well, it's like, this is right. So you can talk about Buddha. You can talk about Islam. You see it in the public schools, right? In our public schools, you know, my kids have had Islamic, you know, priests or whoever come in and teach about Islam for an entire week. Not, they didn't ask me to come in. They talk about Indians and, you know, have re, let kids go through visualization exercises in the public schools today. You, yeah, they aren't going to have me come in and preach. Well, let me show you what happens at church on Sunday. They aren't going to have that happen. Why? Because we need to tolerate everything except the truth. Except the truth. So in short, the emergent church is one of the long line of heresies that attack the authority and inspiration of the Bible. And having rejected the Bible as God's objective, authoritative, infallible truth, then that man can even know the truth they just open the door for Satan and all of his lies. And so that's what's happened. They practice a social gospel. What is a social gospel? The social gospel is kind of an oxymoron because it's not a gospel at all. It's when Christians get together to do or people get together to do good works, but they never tell anybody about the gospel. They never preach Jesus Christ, repentance and faith in him, his resurrection, 
make disciples and bring them into the church to be equipped for the work of the ministry. They don't do that. They just go out and, okay, let's get together and have community and let's go out and help the poor. Okay, the government does that. The church goes out there and helps the poor and preaches the gospel. They go out there and bring people to Christ and then bring them into the church. Otherwise, you're just having a social gospel. Now, a similar term to the emergent church, there's been a group that has broken away, clung to a few of the things in the emergent church, but they liked, didn't like some parts and they liked other parts. And this is the merging church. These are groups of churches that are saying, you know what, because our world out there, when you go out in the world, our culture is so diverse, especially in the big cities. There's so many nationalities and so many people who've never been to church. They come in here and this would be very weird to them. And so they say, let's set aside all the traditions that we can possibly set aside and still maintain sound doctrine, still do everything the Bible says, but just set aside all of the traditional church type constructs so that we can reach these people who are so distant from what churched people have come to understand and really expect. For instance, the Hollywood church is kind of an emerging church. Why? Because they're down there in the inner city. They're very laid back, very casual, have little potlucks every day. You can text the pastor questions while he's preaching. So, you know, he gets text messages. I don't do that. Okay. I don't do that, but that doesn't mean it's sinful. But the whole point is this. They are attempting to reach a lot of these like inner city people or whatever without compromising sound doctrine and going as far as the Bible will let them away from traditions in Christianity without rejecting the truth. So that would be emerging church um, rather than the emergent church. And in recent days, they've been trying to separate themselves more distinctly from the emergent movement. So that is a little bit about that. The key thing you need to remember is this. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, that we are to examine everything and hold on to that which is good. So I don't care if it's, you know, the best Bible church of Burbank, you know. You examine everything and hold on to that which is good. Never be deceived by a name or a title or a profession Examine everything by the scriptures and hold on to that which is good. Because there's there's a never-ending string of aberrations that are being developed, and most of them are born in California. Three, could Jesus have paid the price for our sins by being hung, electrocuted, or drowned? Is the term shedding of blood synonymous with the term death? And does actual bleeding have to occur as in crucifixion or beheading? Now, this is a great question because I have been asked this question a lot of times in different ways. And and really under a question like this, there's really this line of reasoning that I think most people don't assemble in quite this logical way. But this is kind of their thought. They're thinking to themselves because they hear that Blood represents death. And so they're thinking to themselves, since the shedding of blood is a synonym for death, and the shedding of blood was required to make atonement for sins, therefore Jesus could have died without literally bleeding as long as he ended up dying by some 
means he could make atonement for sin. So you can see how you kind of get to that line of reasoning. Okay, so first we need to answer, could Jesus have paid the price for his sins, for instance, by hanging? No blood, just, you know, choked to death. Well, if God had determined that hanging was the necessary way, yes, but he didn't, so no. Um, he required a blood sacrifice. You say, well, what is that? Well, the first place we see blood sacrifice is in Genesis the early chapters of Genesis, when, when Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? He kills animals to what? To clothe them. So right off the bat, innocent animals are killed so that the sin and the consequences of the sin in Adam and Eve can be covered. That is a picture of what atonement is. The covering or removal of sin. So we, we first see that, but the f- real clear statement, the first real clear statement is in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, where in the sacrificial system, God is explaining why he's requiring all these blood sacrifices and why he has him do all these things with the blood. And he says in Leviticus 17, verse 11, for the life of of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement so blood is necessary for life if you drain out your blood you die so in that way blood is a necessary part of your being and by shedding blood or draining out your blood you drain out your life because you can't live without it so God says it is the life is in the blood. And therefore, if you shed an animal's blood, you shed its life. So in that way, it's a synonym for death or murder or whatever bloodshed. Um, if you look it up, you'll see all of these things. So when you go through um, the Old Testament, what would happen is an animal would usually be placed on the altar. You know, if you were in, you're the head of your family, you would come, you'd lay the little lamb down, you put your hands and you confess your sins, you confess your wife's sins, your children's sins, it's in your family, you confess it all, then you get the knife and you cut its throat. And you do that because there's a big artery here, the carotid artery, and all the blood would pump out and, and soon the animal would be dead unless it was a bird and then you'd twist its head off. Um, and everybody should have to do that every once in a while. It's good to know that chickens don't show up in styrofoam trays. Um, <clears throat> they actually get there and it's a bloody process. Uh, so you, you kill these animals. Now, why would God require that the blood? I mean, you know, why not, uh, why not suffocation? You know, the life of the flesh is in the oxygen. And I've given you oxygen to make atonement for sins. Why not that? Or the life of the flesh is in food and water. You know, why not starvation? Well, it, starvation would be a bad one, wouldn't it? Because, you know, you go to put a thing, you put your hands on the, the way in four or five days, you're standing there waiting for the, you know, the lamb, man, man, and slowly after four or five, six days, it finally dies of starvation or whatever on the altar. It'd be really slow down the worship process. So you need something quicker. But even then, why wouldn't you just like smother the animal? Well, in the sacrificial system, God required this blood and and blood was a perfect thing because blood 
was a symbol of the life of the animal. You drain out the blood, you drain out the life of the animal. And then you have blood, which is a a liquid that you can do things with. And in your ritual um, observance, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So you have this, this whole idea of blood is a cleansing thing. It is part of the sacrifice in that really what you're saying is a substituted life is what cleanse, and blood is the symbol for that substituted life. You see this pretty clearly in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, where um, uh, God is talking to Noah, and he says in verse 6, For whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Well, he says, why does he say that? Well, he goes on to say earlier, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And you say, well, that's interesting. Don't eat the flesh with its life in it. That is its blood. Why? Because God wanted that drained out so you wouldn't be eating blood. Um, so whoever sheds man's blood, then that man has to die also. And obviously it's talking about killing. It doesn't matter whether you conk them in the head or strangle them or cut their throat and drain out all their blood. Um, if you kill somebody, the death penalty is instituted there. And so we see that it is clearly a synonym for death. And you can see that if you go through or read any Hebrew or Greek lexicon. Earlier in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, you remember what God said? He says, uh, after, what is this if you have done? He says, the, the blood of your brother is crying out from the earth. That is, he killed him. So the question is this. Why couldn't Jesus have died by, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll say it has to include blood, but be even like beheading. Um, or being torn in two, or run through with a sword. I mean, why did it have to be crucifixion? Well, it had to be crucifixion because that's what God said would happen. That's what God predicted, that uh, that Jesus would be that cursed man on the tree that had to suffer. And I think one of the great lessons here to learn is this. God, you know, you know couldn't have just, you know, pricked Jesus' finger and have him bleed out a couple drops for us or slash his wrists and bleed out quite a bit and then put a tourniquet on it and get better. Okay? He had to have a complete death by crucifixion. And when you think about it, it's amazing that God, out of love for us, to pay for our sins voluntarily sent his son and Jesus voluntarily gave his life to the worst form, the worst form of execution and death, which was crucifixion, that he might save us from our sin. He volunteered for that. And that's what was prophesied. And so that's what he did. Number four is Proverbs eight twenty two through 31, a direct personification of Christ or is that not intended in the text? Again, this is, you know, I, what happens is you start reading, you know, I read things. I mean, I kind of live in this realm. So if you live in the realm of always reading journal articles and commentaries and things, you begin to see these things. And it's kind of fun where these little ideas come from. You start reading somebody and, it, and all of a sudden somebody says, well, yeah, Proverbs eight twenty-two through 31. This is actually... Um, this is actually a personification of Jesus. And you're going, really? I don't really see him there. 
I mean, it talks about the wisdom of God, but where's Jesus now? And so it talks about wisdom being with God. And a personification is when you make somebody sound like a person, something sound like a person that isn't. It's a personification. That is, you kind of personal person them. Um, uh, you know, when you have a little doll and a little girl's talking with the doll, she's like personifying that doll. It's like a real friend and they're talking to him or even a dog or whatever. Okay, so you have this personification going on. Well, some would say that it relates to Christ and some would say no. And uh, I'll give you both views and tell you the best view here. Um, Some would say that you can find Christ in every verse of the Old Testament. Now, now you need to understand where does this come from? You know, like if you're talking with somebody who believes this, they're going to uh, interpret a lot of texts different than you. And you're going to think, why do you do that? I, he's not in there. And they're going to say, yes, he is. And say, well, where? Right there. And you say, where? And then he kind of explains how he's there. And you're thinking, man, I just don't see it. And you go, well, I do. And you're thinking, what's going on here? Well, this is what's going on. There are certain reformed groups who believe that Christ is to be preached from every verse of Scripture. They get to it in an interesting way. Their primary text is Luke chapter 24, verse 27, where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. And as he's on the road to Emmaus, and he meets up with those disciples who are wondering why Jesus had to die, it says this, it says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, there's two different ways to take that. One, while they went for that little half hour or 45 minute or hour or even two hour or three hour walk, I don't know, it doesn't say how long they were walking, that Jesus basically exegeted all 39 books of the Old Testament. That's one option. Or the other option is Jesus, as they're walking along, mentioned all the messianic texts in the Old Testament and explained that they referred to him. Now, what do you think he did? Well, obviously the latter. I mean, you could imagine how long it would take to exegete the whole Bible. So Luke is just saying that Jesus just went through the Old Testament, all the script, Old Testament scriptures, and explained to them, not that he went to every single verse. Well, some taking that and taking other phrases like um, uh, when Paul says in, a, in, in uh, the beginning of Corinthians, we determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we preach the Christ and we preach Christ crucified and we preach the cross. And they said that's all he did. It was Christ, Christ, Christ. And we know from other texts like Acts 20 that he preached the whole council of God's word. So if he preached the whole council and he was preaching only Christ and Christ crucified, therefore, he must have preached the Old Testament and he must have preached Jesus in every verse because it said Jesus did that in all the scriptures. That's bad. That's what you call twisting the scriptures. Be very careful of anybody who likes to pluck phrases out of context and assemble them into what appears to be a rational system. That is dangerous. That is very dangerous. First, Paul, when he's talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 about his methodology and why he preached Christ and Christ only and Christ crucified, was because he went into Corinth and the church wasn't established and he had to evangelize them. So what did he do? He stuck with Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, once people came to Christ, then what did he do? He taught them the whole council. So he taught them the whole council, a whole different context, 
Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders. But when he talks to the Corinthians and he's telling them what I did to come and evangelize you, of course, he preached the gospel. So you can't be taking fragments of verses, assemble them into a system that says we need to preach Jesus out of every verse as a dog returns to its vomit. So a fool to his folly. Now, where is Jesus in there? Now, they'll say, well, Jesus is in there because we know from Colossians that um, Colossians chapter two, verse three, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all wisdom comes from Christ. And since Proverbs contains God's wisdom, then that verse contains God's wisdom. And since God's wisdom is Christ's wisdom, then that's Christ's wisdom. So that's Christ in the text. You see how they get there? The problem is this. The interpretation of a passage, hear me out now, is what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written. The interpretation of a passage is what the original author meant for the original audience to understand by what was written. But what they say, what happened is, is when Christ came, when he lived a perfect life, when he died on the cross and rose again and ascended to heaven, that Christ, they call it the Christ event, the Christ event transformed the Old Testament so everything it meant before, it didn't mean now. And so now Jesus is to be found in every text and really what they mean by that is read into every text, even if he's not there. To do eisegesis, insert him into the passage, and that's bad. We want to do exegesis, that is, take out of the text what's there, not put things into the text which are not there. A classic example of this might be um, the uh, uh, book of the Song of Solomon, which is, you know, a love poem between Solomon and his bride, the Shulamite maiden. Now... They would see that and say, well, because we know from Ephesians that, you know, the church is the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom. Therefore, Solomon represents Jesus and therefore the Shulamite maiden represents the church. Therefore, the whole book is about the church and Jesus. Now, how many of the original audience or author understood that when they when they, you know, do you think those first people who read that said Jesus in the church? No, that's the interpretation. It's true that 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 picture is used in Ephesians, but you can't take that and freight it into the text. That's eisegesis. Of course, when you tell them that, then they say, well, you preach like a Pharisee then. So I say, okay, I preach like a Pharisee, but I'm not going to twist the scriptures. I'm not going to, I'm going to handle accurately the word of truth. I'm going after what the original audience understood by what was written. And then once we find that, we can make practical application to our day. So all that to say, In Proverbs chapter 8, it's a personification of wisdom. There. Five. Our loved ones are with the Lord. At the resurrection, the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first. Who are the dead in Christ who will rise before us? Well, there's two different 
possibilities here. Um, the text being referred to is the classic rapture text in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 12 through 18. And in verse 16, it talks about the dead in Christ who will rise first. Early on, it says those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so who are the dead in Christ? Are those just Christians who from the time of Jesus up to the rapture have died? Or is it everybody, including all the Old Testament saints who died before Jesus? Now, some would say that what happens is, is Jesus is going to um, first resurrect his church. And then after the tribulation, at the second coming, he'll resurrect the Old Testament saints. So in other words, the Old Testament saints who have been dead a lot longer, their spirits are in heaven, right at the rapture, all of a sudden all the Christians show up from the church and they're going, oh man, you got your glorified body already. I got to wait another seven years um, to get mine and it looks good. And, you know, that could be, the question is, 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 well, what is it? Is it both all believers or is it just Christians? I think it's everybody. And you say, well, why is that? Well, first of all, it's clear that the phrase in Christ in the New Testament almost always refers to Christians. When they are in Christ, you're talking about Christians. Why? Because the New Testament is written after Christ. And so they all know that believing in God is believing in Christ. And so that's the term that's used. But the better view, I think, is to take it as all believers who die before the rapture. And you say, well, why is that? Well, let me just take you on a little run here. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when it talks about um, the woman's seed shall, cr- shall crush the serpent's head, that is the first place the Messiah is mentioned. And Adam and Eve believed in that promise. They believed that the woman would have a child who would crush the serpent that is Satan's head. They didn't know death, burial, resurrection, or that his name would be Jesus. They didn't know any of that. All they knew is there was a Messiah coming and we're believing God that he's coming. So in believing in the Messiah, who is the Messiah? Well, Jesus. And that's what we know because we're on the other side of the cross. Paul in Galatians chapter three, verse eight, as he's talking um, about Abraham and uh, our faith as Gentiles, he says this, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So Notice it says the gospel was preached beforehand. Now, you know, did Abraham have gospel tracts like we do? Did he know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? No. What did he know? All he knew is what Adam and Eve knew. There was a Messiah coming. All he knew is that there would be this seed, which he goes on to say, God says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth, that there would be a single person, Paul says that seed is Christ, that this Messiah would come And bless all the nations. He put his faith in that. In the Messiah. And so he was in the Messiah. And that he placed his faith in the Messiah. Just as Adam and Eve did. Another example would be Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 through 413. Which is one of the warning sections in the book of Hebrews. Where the author of Hebrews is trying to you know get these kind of you know uncommitted fence sitters to commit to Christ. And as he talks about it. He talks about how these people in the wilderness who came up out of Egypt, you know, went through the sea that the whole generation dropped dead because of unbelief. And then in chapter four, verse two, he says this very interesting thing. 
For indeed, we have had the good news preached to us. And the good news is the gospel. We've had the gospel preached to us just as they also. And he's referring to those people in the wilderness. So what was their gospel? What, what, what was the gospel that all those people in the wilderness knew? One, they knew what Adam and Eve knew. They knew what Abraham knew. And they even knew what was prophesied through Jacob that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah and the scepter would not depart from Judah. They knew that there was a Messiah coming and that's what they knew and they rejected it and they perished because of unbelief because they didn't believe the gospel. They didn't believe the gospel, the good news preached to them. And so really the only way to be saved is faith in the Messiah. Now we know his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, but they didn't know that. But the point is, there's only one way to be saved and that's to be in Jesus. You're either looking ahead to Jesus coming or we look back at Jesus coming. But either way, all believers are believers in Christ, the Messiah. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John five thirty nine? You search the scriptures, speaking the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness of who? Me. The scriptures speak of me. You need to find me there and you need to believe in me. They are just nothing more than the channel through which you come to know me. And you're great scripture studiers, but you're trusting in your study of the scriptures, not who the scriptures point to, to save you. And we already mentioned the text in Luke 24, 27, where Jesus begins with Moses and the prophet and explains to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Even the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four, verse 25 and 26 says, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to him, he. I mean, she was even a full on Jew. And she said, everybody knows the Messiah is coming. So that is what people placed their faith in before they had more information. And of course, on this side of the cross, we have the full understanding of the gospel. On that side, they just knew that there was a Messiah. They placed their faith in that Messiah. And that is why I think at the rapture, um, the dead in Christ will be all those who were saved up to that time because you can only be in Christ and saved. There's no other person or name by which men must be saved. Six, why doesn't Calvary Bible Church practice the Lord's Supper every week? And the answer to that is because the Bible doesn't say so. Now, um, there's only one verse that really tells us the frequency of how often we need to celebrate communion. And that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 26, where Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All he says is as often as you do it. That's all. So how often is that? Well, three times a week, once a week, twice a week, once every two weeks, once a month, once every six months. You know, why do we do it once? Well, before I got here, the elders determined once a month. And, uh, you know, you that's what we do here corporately. Now, um, you think to yourself, well, okay, so we do it once a month, but is there like other reasons? Yeah, there's some pragmatic reasons. You know, like we come this morning and, you know, all those little trays with little juices in them and, the, you know, the, the crackers or whatever. Um, that stuff doesn't just show up automatically. We don't like get here on communion Sunday. It's like, well, look at them sitting there. 
Um, there's actually somebody who spends a lot of time squirting little bits of juice into those little things. And so there is quite a bit of work involved. And whenever we celebrate communion, it takes about 15 minutes out of the service, which is another reason. There's other ways we want to worship. We want to worship through singing and, and shepherding moment and prayer and, you know, a call to worship, giving. All those things are different ways of worshiping. And so um, we've just determined that we're going to do it once a month and we'll scale back the other things so we can do communion I don't want to do it too frequently, people. You know, they kind of just, it becomes like a dead ritual because we do it all the time. And, um, and so that's what we do. However, having said that, if you want to have more communion, then have more communion. You know, you don't have to be a priest. You don't have to be an ordained minister or pastor to do communion. You can have communion at your home. You can have the next time you have a pool party, next time you get together with friends at the beach, you can have communion. You can have communion. Um, uh, if, uh, if, uh, you know, you, you're going to do it, make sure you read the scriptures and you know, especially first Corinthians 11 thoroughly. Um, you don't want to eat and drink judgment to yourself or encourage others to do so. That would be serious. Um, but you don't need to be an ordained, you know, minister to, um, have communion. You just need to be a Christian and you can celebrate it. So if you're not celebrating it enough, then celebrate it more, get some other believers together and do it. Um, uh, if you want to have it every week, you can petition the elders for an hour and 45 minute service and we might be able to get it in every week. All right. Number seven, what does the word that refer to in Ephesians 2, 8? I like this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that. Not of yourselves. What's that refer to? Isn't that great? You think, well, obviously it refers to faith or salvation or grace or all three. See, that, that's the problem. There's a lot of people who want to, they just want to take a little bit of responsibility for their salvation. And they want to say, well, I did believe. I did that. That was me who did that. It's like, okay, so you're saved by Christ's death. And your faith that you did, independent of God, independent of his grace, you did your own thing. And so you're kind of co-workers in your own salvation. Other people say, no, no, even faith is the gift of God. And that's what it's referring to there. So what is being referred to there? Well, in this, these two verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you have a central verb and then six phrases that modify that verb. Now, I'm going to get a little grammary on you. Try not to die. Um, but I think you'll kind of find it. It's kind of fun. Um, this is the kind of stuff I usually don't explain to you on Sunday morning because it's a bunch of technical stuff. And I just get there and then I just tell you the end result. But I'm going to tell you the details now. And so try not to fall asleep on me. First, you have this central verb, which is you have been saved. Okay, this is um, what this means is you are presently in the state of having been saved. That, that's how you would translate if you want to do like the bonehead literal translation. You are presently in the state of having been saved. It is a perfect passive participle. Say that three times fast. Perfect passive participle. Um, yeah, perfect passive. You say, whoa, 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 what does that mean? Well, I'm going to explain each piece to you. Perfect. A perfect tense is this. A perfect tense is something that happens in the past with results that continue 
to the present. Something happens to you in the past and right now in the present, you are experiencing the results of what happened before. So it's the perfect tense, the perfect tense. Um, Not only that, it is in the passive voice. You have active, you have passive. Active is when the subject, the thing being talked about, does the action. The boy hit the ball. The boy is the subject and he is acting upon the ball. He is striking the ball. He is the doer of the action. That's not what this is. This is passive. The boy is hit by the ball. He's whacked by it right in the forehead or whatever. You know, somebody throws and he's kind of gawking. I'll whack. Um, he gets hit by the ball. Okay. He is the receiver of the action. It strikes him. So you have active tense. When the subject is the doer of the action, you have the passive where the subject is the receiver of the action. This is a perfect passive um, participle, which means an ongoing thing. So in other words, in the past, I was saved by somebody. I received the action of salvation, which continues into the present. That's what's being said here. Okay, now that you have that done, let's talk about these six phrases. So you have that you have been saved. You are right now in the state of having been saved. And then you have these six phrases. Five emphasize that salvation is not uh, of works. And one phrase kind of gives a consequence, but also is you could add it into not of works. Also, you'll see how that is. The first phrase is you have been saved by grace. Grace is undeserved, unearned favor from God. Okay. Secondly, you have been saved through faith. Faith is believing, trusting in Jesus Christ and him crucified for the salvation um, that you desperately need because you're a sinner. Three, the salvation you presently enjoy is not of yourself. Four, the salvation you enjoy is a, is the gift of God. A gift is something somebody gives you. It's, you know, not of yourself. It's the gift of God. I mean, he's saying it in six different ways. Fifth, the salvation you enjoy is not as a result of works. You didn't do anything to earn your salvation or obtain your salvation. So right there with the verb and those five phrases, you have six clear statements that salvation is not of yourself, except for the faith part, which we're going to look at. And then there's the consequence. No one can boast about their salvation. Why? Because it's of God. God saves you. You don't save yourself. All right. So what about the word that? Well, it can refer to really a couple things. One is you could say that that refers to faith because faith is the nearest antecedent. In other words, a lot of times when you have a sentence and you say something and you say this or that or these or those, those are called demonstratives. You're referring to the thing that is previously discussed. So by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. So what is the nearest antecedent? It would be faith. The problem is, is the word that, I hate to do this to you, 
is in the nominative case. That is, in Greek, everything is tagged so you know what it relates to. The subject is in the nominative case, and so is that. So we know that refers to you have been saved. You have been saved. Now, the question is, does it only refer to salvation? Well, some would say it only refers to salvation. It doesn't refer to grace. It doesn't refer to faith. It doesn't refer to gift. It doesn't refer not a result, uh, not of works. But that's not true. <laughs> we know grace is from God and it's not of us. And we know that not a result of work, uh, not, not a result of works means not a result of works. And a gift is something else somebody gives you. And so all those phrases all refer of things that who do? God. So that doesn't work good. Then we could say, well, maybe it refers to everything that's being talked of the salvation which is by grace through faith or it only refers to faith well only refers to faith you have that little grammatical thing so it's best to take it as everything everything when it says that not of yourselves it's yes the salvation that happens to you the grace that is given to you the faith that is given to you and you say well does the bible actually say that faith is given to us well Let's find out. John 6.29, Jesus answered and said to him, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So what is the work of God that you believe? God works in people the ability to believe. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. God grants you saving faith. People, before they come to Christ, don't see God, Paul says. They're spiritually dead. They can't understand the things of the word of God. And so God grants them, gives them, imparts to them faith by grace. And so the best way to take that is to refer to the salvation, which is by grace through faith, a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. When a couple minutes over, thanks for being patient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and giving us your word that we can search it out and find answers to so many questions. And when we look at things like this, it gives us more questions. And I pray that each person here would be excited about studying their Bible, reading their Bible, thinking about their Bible, meditating on it, memorizing it, talking about it reading other books about it so that we could know you better, know your will better, know truth better so that we can give you more glory. We thank you for your kindness in sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and resurrected so that through faith in him we might receive the free gift of eternal life through what he has accomplished. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.